Hello, I'm Alex Mozed, and you're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Just trying to make sense of where all this stuff is going to net out. I'm joined by uh, Nick Johnson, co-author with me on the book, and very excited to have our inaugural uh, guest speaker join us straight from the EU, Doris Honold, the former Global Chief Operating Officer of Standard Chartered Bank. Um, Doris, really excited to have you on the show today. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Hi, hello. Yeah, uh, I'm here uh, live from London. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Doris. I'm, uh, you know, I have uh, 25 years of financial services experience in, in, in very... Uh, say, traditional banks, traditional organizations. I had a lot of different roles in Frankfurt, London, Tokyo, Singapore, uh, mostly in the, in the risk function and chief, uh, chief operating function. And my last role was, as Alex mentioned, in uh, Standard Charter Bank, uh, which is a, a British bank, but operating across uh, 60 countries, mostly in Africa and Asia. Amazing. And, and you're also on the board of Zopa, one of the leading peer-to-peer -peer lenders, which we'll talk more about um, later on or in, in a little bit. But, you know, Doris, I think just at a high level, it'd be great if you could, given, given your vast knowledge of banking, um, could you just explain to us, you know, how does the actual loan underwriting process work um, and what goes into all of that? Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, uh, no, because of course it's obvious if you ask the question, it's, it's quite different if it's a loan underwriting for an individual or, or uh, a, a large corporate. But they're, they're of course uh, the same elements, and I, I describe it in, in three levels. And the first one is always a kind of the strategy. So the bank really agrees what is our strategy. Who, who do we lend to? What do we do? What do we actually know? And, and where do we want to be, be in business? Like one good example is that um, a lot of banks changed their recent, uh, their, their strategy, uh, you know, given all the climate change activism to not lend to coal companies, for example. Uh, so there are reviews of the strategy, which, which right at the beginning say, uh, that's a good idea to look at, or oh, that's not a good idea. We just don't want to do that. Um, the second level is then the risk appetite. It's it's quite critical that the bank banks decide upfront, you know, that's the size of our balance sheet. How much do we want to allocate to loans? And then within this allocation, how much uh, do we want to lend in specific countries and specific sectors, how much do we give to telecoms, how much do we give to real estate lending. And you already have quite a quite a detailed framework. And then really comes the 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 individual loan decision, the individual uh, uh, credit analysis where you you have a client um, coming with an idea and you really assess and you in essence assess the you know what's what's the probability of of getting the money back and if you if i if i look at what happened over the years the biggest change and the 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 uh, the biggest part of innovations has really happened in this in this credit analysis piece uh 
these days the the algorithm used by banks are a lot more sophisticated the number of of data elements uh is is a lot higher because in essence the uh, the better your predictive power, the more likely is it that you're going to outperform your uh, your competitors. Great, and and I think that gets to kind of this uh, trend of automation and and using data in the underwriting process. This is a um, survey from 2012, um, which was surveying banks and where they are in the process of automating, you know, different parts of the underwriting process. So from compliance related to uh, different concentration limits and different portals for data gathering and the, the, the dark kind of blue on the left is using it. The, 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 the medium is don't use it. And then, and then all the way on the right is don't know. And then this is, uh, from Elevate, which which uh, is a fintech lender, went public in 2017, I believe. And so it talks similarly kind of how they are um, using data, using automation to streamline the underwriting process, um, looking at credit scores, fraud scores, you know, instant decision making on 95% of loans. This is an overarching, overgeneralized question. But if you look at the role of say, banks' ability to automate and streamline and use data in the underwriting process versus the fintechs. How would you compare and contrast those two? I'd say fintechs uh, are probably um, ahead of it in certain areas. And, and, I, and I think a lot, a lot has happened in banks over the last five years. And that's really as a as a consequence of the challenge by fintechs, uh, because if you if you look at what um, the loan market is, there is no differentiation in product. It's not like buying a car or a house. In essence, you want you want money. So the the you know it's it's not different. The money is the same if you get it from this bank or from this fintech. What is what is the the, the only two differentiation are the the price, your your loan rate, and the convenience, and this is really where I think fintechs have done an an excellent job on both, like having more competitive pricing as a result of better models, and and making it more convenient through easy uh, easy uh, easy interfaces. But of course, you, you know it's 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 difficult. So so fintechs have their pockets where I think they're definitely. Uh, competitive and ahead of banks, and banks are are reacting to that and investing heavily and and uh, catching up and you know in certain areas maybe are on the same level or or leak, uh, uh, leading through uh, either uh, you know co uh, collaborations with 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 fintechs or in in areas where you know fintechs are are more 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 tailored and banks usually have a lot broader offering. So that's that's I'd say, but I think fintech, to their credit, have have started a a, a really good process, where and the and the end the the client is the winner. Yeah, it's, and that's a fantastic point, being broad versus focusing on a few specific areas, and I think that's been a, a big challenge for a lot of the fintech lenders, is because very often you see them focusing on say. 
a few industries um, or a few type of, you know, personal retail loans. Whereas banks uh, generally have just a much wider breadth of loan portfolio that, that they're comfortable providing. What are the what are the main drivers as as to why you see that shape up? Is it more just the banks have a larger balance sheet? They just have experience building the credit models across a wider array of industries? Is it that that the fintechs just don't have the ability to have the models that scale across as, as large of a portfolio? Or why do you see that that kind of more nichiness from a fintech lending uh, focus? I think uh, banks are broader because uh, historically uh, they have been broader. I, I, I think it's really a, a big argument is, is, is the history. A big argument might, or, might also be that banks maybe have more of a, a you know, a, how to say that social responsibility to, to cover, to cover the whole, whole, whole spectrum. And I think fintechs, of course, you know, if you start something and you want to reach scale, then you have to be focused. Yeah, I was reading an article that some of the, the big banks in the U.S., maybe it was Bank of America, um, that, that they actually don't make money on half of the retail loans they're issuing. And maybe it kind of gets to that. Maybe, maybe the fintechs are, are right to focus on, on some of the juicier areas um, and the oh. banks, whether for regulatory or societal or just that's the way they've done it, um, have a much broader portfolio, but maybe not as profitable of a portfolio. Um, yeah, that's interesting. So um, what about, okay, so, so banks are lending this money. Um, in the US, banks can borrow from the Fed, basically. At, they, they pay a 50 basis point premium. So if the Fed fund rate is like 1.75 to 2%, which is <laughs> where it's at now. They pay an extra 50 bips, and then they basically just get to resell that uh, debt. So they're kind of like just giant distributors of debt capital. If you kind of think about it that way. And, um, you know, I guess what? If you are a AAA, you know, uh, um, you know grade A kind of uh, borrower, what, do you, what are you getting debt at? Like... Four, four, um, four points today, or somewhere around there, you know. And they're so the, the the spread isn't that large, but but they're reselling this capital. I assume it, it basically works pretty similarly uh, in the EU with the ECB, right? Yeah, of course. And then the next thing is so. Then I think people understand that <coughs> fintechs, however, don't have. The luxury of borrowing from the Fed in that same capacity, right? And that's that's a regulatory reason that they're not regulated like a bank. Therefore, they don't get access to what is it like the discount window or something like that? Is that ac all accurate? That's the point. Where, whereas you you see uh, at least in the UK, you know all these uh, uh, you know fintechs who started as a fintech very quickly got a uh, got a banking license. And actually, the UK regulator was fairly um, fairly flexible in giving out the licenses because they uh, they're, they're still differentiating. How do we regulate a big bank versus a, a tiny new fintech bank, and what can you do? Uh, but the the whole motivation about showing that flexibility and making it easier to get a banking license was the idea that they they like the idea of new competitors coming in. 
Mm. So it's the whole idea of competition is positive for the consumer. And the, the impetus for a lot of those fintechs to get a banking license, right, is that it gives them access to basically a, a cheaper source of funds than if they don't have the license. The other topic that you hear a lot about these days, but I don't think many people know, is quantitative easing. Um, and so I'm going to take a stab at how, to, how I would describe this, and then you let me know how I do. Um, so my understanding of it is that, so if, if you're a bank, um, the Fed and, and the central bank, so the ECB in Europe would say, you as a bank have to hold certain amount of cash reserves on your balance sheet. Um, and they can, you know, lower or increase that reserve amount, uh, based upon what the Fed wants to do in terms of maybe increasing or decreasing the amount of lending that, that banks are, are doing. Right. So if they have, if they have to keep more cash on the balance sheet, that, leaves less capital that they can lend. Now, quantitative easing is that they could keep the reserve requirement the same, but what the Fed can do is say, we're going to buy marketable securities, or we're basically going to buy loans from you, bank, and now um, you're going to have essentially more cash, you're going to have a more liquid balance sheet, which now opens up more capital for you to go and then lend uh, that money out to other either retail or, or commercial borrowers. Um, so far, so good on that? So far, so good. Yeah, it's, it's the whole the whole point is just to 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 generate liquidity for banks to lend out to to bring more money in circulation. Now, the interesting thing is when the Fed does this. They just do it. It's, they just make up the money. The money just appears. You know, it's kind of like they're a genie and they snap their fingers and boom. Okay, I just bought $100 billion of your debt, Bank of America. Okay, there you go. There's $100 billion. But the interesting thing is that the money never actually transfers to Bank of America from the Fed. They're just kind of, from, it's really an accounting thing. It's where the now ones and zeros in a computer. Yes. Now the Fed says, oh, well, you have $100 billion. I'm just making up the number of more liquidity because I have, you know, acquired these securities from you. Um, so all of that's very interesting. So it's just another way, it's another mechanism to, as you're saying, you know, either increase or decrease liquidity. The interesting thing about it is it's not as hard coded of a metric, right? It's not saying here is the reserve requirement. Here's the fed funds rate. It's kind of this more amorphous um, activity that you either know that the Fed is doing this or not doing this, but it's not as measured as saying as the other metrics. So it's, it's not as clear to everyone the degree of liquidity or, or, or lack thereof that's being created by the, the central bank. So that's really interesting. Um, let's go a little bit more into, into the fintech um, lending landscape. And let's start with Zopa. So Zopa... It's a very interesting company, probably the leading peer-to-peer -peer lender uh, in in the UK and in Europe. Um, you've been on the board there. What, how would you describe what Zopa is and <coughs> what makes it so great? I think what Zopa is most proud of is that they're, I think, the first peer-to-peer -peer, uh, lending company in the world. So they really started uh, 14 years ago. And so therefore, they're also a, a fintech or peer-to-peer lending company who has been through a through a credit cycle and uh, who are still around so that's uh, that's proof point that uh, 
even fintechs uh, can uh, can survive uh, uh, a credit cycle. Um, I think if if I if I would describe Zopa, I would describe it as um, you know what's what's the um, and and Zopa by the way also just recently got a got a banking license. Uh, and their their vision is really you know if you if you look out there then there are a lot of uh, people who are who are stressed about money and who think managing money is just painful and they basically want to create a space where where managing your money is easy it's 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 actually fun so that's why all all, all they're doing is you know what what does it make uh, what what is it that it makes easier for for clients uh, to manage their money, so that means not using any jargon. That means uh, transparency on your pricing, no hidden fees, um, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, for example, if you if you go on the Zopa webpage, you and you want a loan, they give you. Uh, uh, they say you will get the loan, and this is the rate, and they tell you that before you officially apply for the loan. And that just makes you feel in control because it's it's very, you know, disturbing if you apply and then you get like a, a, a ridiculous rate or you get declined and it might impact your credit score, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's geared towards the retail investor, right? Um, yeah. Looks like, you know, personal loans, um, yeah. car loans, um, yeah. other things like that. <laughs> so very cool company. now. I found this graphic. Um, I was at a a lunch with uh, Anna Boten, the executive chairwoman of Santander Bank, um, on Monday, and she was saying, "Well, fintech lending is much higher in the United States than it is in Europe." This is from 2017. It shows about 36 percent of um, the personal loan industry. So this isn't everything, but a good indicator that fintech lending is certainly on the rise. Um, banks actually have only about 25% on this chart in the US. But what she was saying is that in Europe, the spread is much different. Banks actually ha still have a majority of lending and the kind of the, the ratio is, is <laughs> somewhat inverted. Um, it, well, assuming that's true, I guess, why is that the case? You know, what would you say is different US Europe as to, as to why you see um, banks having a smaller portion in the U.S. versus Europe or fintechs maybe having more 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 penetration in the U.S. Yeah. than in Europe. That's interesting, and I also I, I I probably read the same article Anna Anna read, which was in the FT, and I was uh, I was surprised as well to see that uh, fintechs with respect to um, to lending really haven't really grabbed a lot of market share in the in the UK. Um, you know, what are the reasons? I think there can be a whole range of reasons. One could be timing, um, that it's too early. For example, Monzo, uh, a very uh, successful, um, uh, you know, UK challenger bank has only recently started to, to offer loans. So, you know, their, their focus was first on, 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 on um, making the whole payments money management easier than giving out loans so with monzo i guess it's it's definitely a 
uh, uh, timing issues. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I read something interesting about the uh, UK fintech lending space, which which gives us a slightly different angle to it, and which is I read that in the uh, sorry the US that in the US still a lot of people um, the first um, the first stop is at traditional banks, and if they get declined by uh, traditional banks, they go to, to to challenger banks. So kind of indicating that challenger banks get maybe get a bigger share of the pie, but maybe also more 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 risky or, or more credit yeah. for. So, you know, I, I, I think it's it's probably worth having a more uh, uh, more detailed analysis on, on this. But it's 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 definitely a very interesting fact. Well and that's a great point. And actually so there's this article is a little bit older from the FT. It's from 2015, um, and it talks about Metro Bank, which is a challenger bank uh, in, in the UK, partnering up with Zopa and providing loans on Zopa. I'll come back to that in a second. But to your other point, it also says here that Santander and RBS um, did a partnership with Funding Circle. Different, though. Different partnership, where they're basically saying, hey, we can't lend to you. so." Here's this group called Funding Circle, and I'm sure Funding Circle is kind of paying like a referral fee or something like that for essentially the, those those uh, rejected borrowers um, in 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 this model here. Now, what is more interesting though is that to me is kind of like a lending marketplace 1.0. That's kind of like what, what what we've seen in the other direction with a lending tree or a bank rate in the U.S. where you know, they're saying, hey, you know, I'll connect you to a variety of different borrowers. It could be banks, it could be fintech lenders, <coughs> and then they collect a fee um, from the lenders to make that introduction. I'm sure that's kind of similar. But what was very interesting in this article, article was the description of now, um, this is now a number of years ago, Zopa going beyond just what you would consider peer-to-peer. And peer-to-peer would imply individuals are lending to other individuals. But this yeah. was, I think, probably the first case. I think they have some other partners now yeah. that aren't necessarily all banks. I think there's some funds that are doing this, but where they're now getting institutional money to come and um, provide capital to the Zopa borrowers. And um, I think this model is really interesting. And, uh, and, and I would imagine is working pretty well for them. Is there any, any other context that you can share on, on that? No, I mean, the way, the way I, I, I look at it is that SOPA has built, you know, might be a very successful peer-to-peer lending, lending platform. And there are other player, players out there, uh, Metro Bank or, or other, other funds who, who have excess liquidity and like you know, peer to peer, an individual investor who who likes the the platform as an as an investment. That's a that's an uh, uh, an interesting way to deploy excess liquidity. So and and for for Sopa, they have a yeah, they have a a, a mix between uh, um, you know funding from individuals and and funding from uh, from uh, from institutions. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting, though, is Lending Club, um, which, you know, started as peer to peer. A lot of people have criticized Lending Club because now there's 
the peer-to-peer lending side of the business has actually declined a lot. And it's more so gobbled up by just a handful of large banks and institutions. I see that model with Lending Club as being different than Zopa. I see Zopa working with institutions, but not the kind of incumbent banking institutions that Lending Club is working with. Is that accurate, Nick? Would you say? Lending Club works with a pretty broad swath, including a lot of the big institutions, Goldman, hedge funds, uh, big banks. And I think what what's interesting here is um, the difference between a a personal lender where Zopa says, hey, um, let's say Alex uh, is applying for a loan. Here is the credit risk. I think they have ABC. They have different grades that they're going to provide <coughs> to my application. And then they are associating that with a certain level of interest rate. And then they are now letting um, individuals lend to really a portfolio. So, um, you know, if, if I'm a lender, I put in $10,000, they might split that $10,000 across, let's say, 10 loans. And me as the lender, I can pick what, what risk profile I want for that basket and so on and so forth. The larger institutional lenders here will, will um, obviously need to put much more capital to you. So they will provide the whole loan, say, to me. Um, but what is interesting, I think, and, and this isn't, say, Zopa specific, is when you have institutional lenders that can now start to put larger sums of money to work, that can use the data, that can have their own algorithms. Um, do we see a model where those institutional lenders, you know, the platform could still say, here is what we think Alex's risk rating is. Here is all the data that Alex provided about the, the loan that he wants and his credit profile, so on and so forth. And is there a way where we can have these lend- these uh, lenders compete over my loan. And let's say one lender is now, they are creating their own interest rate to suggest what they would lend to me at. Maybe one says, well, I'll give Alex 6%. And one says, I'll give Alex 5%. Is there a way that you can now centralize these transactions um, and kind of put a forcing function on the uh, lender base to, to do that competition? Um, is that a direction you see the industry going? Is it already there? No, I mean, of course, uh, of course, that uh, that uh, that can happen, and and of course, you you can look at it both sides. Now, I'm not sure if if Alex is a is a is a good example. I guess it depends on your the size of your needs. I guess, uh, but the 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 point I'm making, you know, it always depends if there is. Uh, Excess liquidity, which as a result of too much quantitative easing, yes, then they're going to all compete about Alex's mm. loan. If, if mm-hmm. there's uh, not enough liquidity around, you will have to shop around and, and see who will give you the best rate. So it's, you know, it can turn around, but you're absolutely mm. right that with, with platforms, a scenario where, where lenders compete about giving me, you know, being able to give you the num- the money is, is realistic and feasible. And it wasn't 10 years ago. Very interesting. And now, and now you kind of, we went full circle here. So um, you're mentioning Zopa has been around for 14 years. It's gone through a credit cycle. And as you're saying, look, the central banks really are able to exert so much influence over just liquidity and, and, and the lending dynamic. Um, I think, I think they're back to quantitative easing in the U.S. I'm not 
not I should I should know that. Um, but there was tightening and whatever. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think I think that is the biggest knock that I hear from the skeptics about the fintech lenders is that well, everything we've seen here has happened in kind of a a bull case scenario. They haven't seen a downturn. Historical bull market. Of course, they're doing well. Right. And well, that's all going to get turned on its head if and when we have a downturn. Um, maybe some of that's true. Maybe there are some people that are a little overextended, taking on a little too much risk. But directionally, I wouldn't agree with that. Um, I have a little bit of bias, but you're, you're from the industry. What say you? I never like blanket statements. Uh, so... <laughs> Will, 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 if, if there's a downturn, um, will there be some defaults? Yes. Will there be some, some defaults from, from startups and, and, and fintechs? Of course. But that's kind of if you, if you look at the, uh, you know, the money, uh, venture capital funds, um, other, other lenders have put into startups and into into fintechs. It's it's amazing. So there was really suddenly this this huge amount of money, which which people were happy happy very happy to give away to to new ideas to 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 challenge banks, challenge whatever. And of course, if you are in such an environment where everybody is kind of in this rush to find an opportunity of a new company to to invest in, you. There are situations where you 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 get carried away, and maybe you know there were there were a few investment cases who who weren't as as solid as they they looked in the in in the heat of the moment. But I don't think that's a that's a function of you know uh, fintechs not being uh, thoughtful or professional or having excellent people who know how to ride out a storm. Like always, there will be some uh, some winners and some losers. <laughs> yes, very true. We'll just see if the winners can take all, right? But uh, anyway, <laughs> sorry about that. Doris, thank you so much for joining us today. We hope to have you back thank again you. soon. Have a great rest of your afternoon, evening in London. Thank you. Thanks, Doris. Great. Well, that was fantastic. Um, let's... Uh, Let's shift gears. Let's get away from the banking stuff. Let's look at boxing. And I think I'm pronouncing this right. I think it's called the zone. <laughs> it's D A Z N and it's kind of separated. I think it's the zone. Otherwise, I don't think it's, you know, you call it Dazen or D A Z N. I think it's the zone. Clearly, I've not subscribed for it yet, but it is very interesting. What is it? For a hundred bucks. You can get annual an annual subscription to DAZN, and you can see. Look here, um, October fifth. You could have just watched Triple G. I know that name. You know, I've heard of Triple G. Um, Canelo. I've heard of Canelo. November second. Um, these other guys, I think, are very popular as well. Full disclosure: I'm not totally familiar with them, but. <laughs> From what I've heard from my friends who are into boxing, this is a fantastic deal. Why is this such a good deal? It's such a good deal that, well, certainly the promoter who helped ink the deal says that pay-per-view is, um, is dead. This article is refuting that. Where is this guy? Golden, 
Golden Boy Promotions. I love the names um, of these uh, promotion companies in boxing. So Golden Boy Promotions, Oscar De La Hoya. I've been all over New York, New York City this week and felt a huge, huge buzz on December 13th of last year, he said. And I want to start by saying, ladies and gentlemen, pay-per-view is dead. I'm actually happy to announce that pay-per-view is dead. The guy has a little bit of bias because he's inking deals with DAZN, but we'll disregard that. This article says, well, it's not completely dead, but it's certainly going to struggle. And that I would agree with wholeheartedly. Here's why. Let's just look at the numbers. Basically, pay-per-view, if you watch each one of these fights, it starts at like 75 bucks per fight. It's not cheap. So this Pacquiao fight, 75 bucks. That you get the whole card typically with that. So it's not like one fight. There's a bunch of you know lesser fights that come before that. But when people were buying the pay-per-view, most of them are buying it for the you know, mm-hmm. titular fight. So, you know, HBO is charging $85 per match. So you pay a hundred bucks. And so now what the what DAZN is doing is signing key kind of all-stars like Triple G or Canelo or these, I'm sure the other guys on there are all-stars as well, but they're signing uh, these, 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 these big tier uh, boxers and then is packaging this up into a subscription model. And they're doing a lot of fights. And so um, pay-per-view just charges so much money that um, yes, they are going to be in a lot of trouble. Maybe they can go get, you know, one-off matches with key boxers but um what you know it's, it's the gonna netflix be tough. factor here yes. too where you had a lot of you know, people were worried about the rise of illegal streaming or you know, torrenting of content and no one would ever pay for tv again turns out they would if you made it convenient and put it at a reasonable price mm-hmm. uh 15 a month or you know, roughly that for netflix mm-hmm. and now for boxing it's the same idea you know, there's a lot of people there's been a huge rise of like illegal streaming of boxing matches because people just don't want to pay $75 yeah. every few months or every month or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, however frequently there's a big match. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this basically says, all right, we'll give you $100 a month. Still not cheap, but compared to the, the current price or the historical price in the market for boxing, great deal. Uh, and we'll give it to you know, convenience. You can watch it however, wherever you want. And uh, I imagine that's you know similar to Netflix, pretty effective for this target audience and just saying, let's make it simple and seamless mm-hmm. and put it at a reasonable price and people will pay for it. So what's interesting is, you know, what is what is the genesis of the zone, right? If you go on Crunchbase, it doesn't really tell you much of anything. It doesn't say that they've raised any money. Basically, this is a JV. This is a spin out. Um, it was spun out by Perform Group, which is a sports media company majority owned by Access Industries. So if you look at what Access Industries is, um, it's a basically um, Len Blavatnik, billionaire. They own a variety of different things. One of the things that they owned was certain television rights, and some of that was in the boxing arena. So he kind of seeded this, got this going, Um <coughs> He also owns part of like Warner Music Group and all these things. So he got this going. It started in the UK um, and then I think came to Canada. And then in May of last year, 2018, they announced they're coming to the US. They got the former ESPN president, um, John Skipper, as their executive chairman. And then they started making deals. So basically, Len and Access and all of that are f- seeding this with capital. 
They're now getting a lot of subscriptions to help offset that, but they had to ink and put out a lot of capital to do some of these lockups. So they started doing deals with Sky Sports box office, you know, this matchroom sport. They did a deal with Viacom to get access to their promotions boxing group and then also get access to all the events televised on Paramount. So they're doing deals, right? They just did a deal um, or they did a deal in October of last year with Canelo, an 11 fight deal valued at $365 million. Um, And he had just done a fight maybe a month or two before that for, and you could have paid, I don't know, $85 on pay-per-view for it. Now, here's the thing. The pay-per-view companies and the middlemen were taking so much of the money from the boxers. Um, so the other thing that I think zone has done is help to cut out some of the middlemen, cut out a lot of these different players, go directly to some of the key talent and lock them up. So, yes, it's kind of like the Netflix for boxing. The difference is the supply is actually a lot more limited and right. you can lock them up. I actually like this business model much more than Netflix's business model. Right, well, if you get the, if you get the supply, yes, then uh, it's hard to compete against it. You can basically effectively create a monopoly by if you're doing it. Obviously, it's not going to be cheap, but there's a lot of people that make content out there, so it's a little bit harder for Netflix to do that without uh, bleeding any more cash than they already are. And now the interesting thing is they're starting to get into other sports. I think they're starting to do uh, rugby internationally. Um, and, you know, other, I guess, you know, less like primetime sports. It might be a little bit harder to watch. They can probably get them for on the cheap and, and now have a kind of multi-tiered subscription package. I think it's a very interesting model. I think sports is the one thing that's keeping cable TV alive. And if they have now, if pay-per-view boxing was their back door into the industry, and they now have the subscription model and they now, you know, why won't they go get like the soccer league in the yeah, U.S., right? Uh, I think Bleacher Report in the U.S. has the Champions League games. Mm. And you could, they have, if you go into their app, they'll say, hey, welcome watch the Champions League game and you can stream it. And they have, I think, a subscription service. So you can pay like a la carte, like I'll yep. pay three bucks to watch this match. So that's that kind of competition is already happening. And yeah, I think. You have a lot of these big licenses for the major domestic leagues coming up uh, in the early 2020s, uh, and it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. And along with that, yeah, you have a lot of these you know, lesser popular sports, particularly in the U.S. You know, soccer is still not as big a draw as you know uh, American football, basketball, these kinds of things, uh, as well as these kind of more niche international sports. Things like cricket in the U.S. would be another one, whereas that's huge internationally. Uh, so if you can get these entry points in, I could definitely see them building enough of an audience where eventually they're able to compete for some of these bigger sports licenses. Yeah. And that will be the nail in the coffin for cable TV as we know it. I mean, that's you, it. That's you, really the thing propping them up. You've also got uh, competing with them, though, are the big sports companies like ESPN has their ESPN Plus service. So they would be competing against them for rights to stuff, I imagine. Yeah. But again, that's taking something that used to be huge for cable Live sports, ESPN was a big part of that package. Mm-hmm. And now you can get it for, what, five bucks a month? Or, mm-hmm. you know, if you bundle it in with Disney, Disney Plus and other stuff, you can get it for even less than that. Yep. So it, uh, that cable bundle is starting to uh, you know, unbundle. unbundle and pick apart. And 
the the cord cutting is definitely going to accelerate. I think in the next three to five years, as a lot of these streaming services really take off. Mm-hmm. So you know, let's go back to China in a positive light. You know, we were a little down on them yesterday, um, but you know, look. There are a lot of really great things going on in China as it relates to platforms, even though the Chinese government is is abusing that power. And Tencent, even though they have kind of been a part of that um, of late, so they're putting $500 million into this Chinese drugstore brand. But to note, they've also um, done a lot of other things in healthcare. They um, have a kind of marketplace for doctors, healthcare network. They have they telemedicine. Have telemedicine with remote consultations. They're providing their own health insurance model. Yep. Um, they're getting access to the medical records. They're putting AI on top of that. Um, it's very, very cool what they're doing. Um, basically, I'll say this full stop. Chinese tech platforms uh, in healthcare are miles ahead of what's going on in the United States. And it's a big problem. Um, there's so much regulation as we've talked about, it's the regulation, it's incumbents locking up data with or without regulation, using regulation as an excuse. Um, the incumbents are able to lock up the industry and just kind of undermine innovation, um, through this kind of quagmire of, uh, consolidated payers in the U S where the money is controlled by five parties, (coughs) the insurance companies. And it's very difficult to break into healthcare in the United States. In China, there basically was no incumbent healthcare infrastructure. Well, a lot of it was, there's a basic minimum standards of care provided by the state, but there's a big shortage of doctors, so it can take a very long time to get things that you need, uh, you know, not necessarily convenient. Uh, so there's a lot of challenges with healthcare in China. And into that vacuum, basically, these uh, tech platforms have basically stepped in and said, all right, we're going to do what we did to other industries. We're going to introduce a platform. We're going to create a network. Mm-hmm. We're going to suck out a lot of the transaction cost, make it more convenient. So yep. now you can you know, get a, get on the phone with a doctor or do a video call rather than having to go in there. And that uh, makes it a lot easier to, for a lot of these low hanging fruit, like, oh, my kid has a flu and I want to get feedback on what should I do? You know, he's a fever of 102. Uh, things like that is stuff that can very easily be handed over telemedicine. And a lot of the barriers, particularly insurance was has a long time been a big barrier to that in the U.S., uh, taking off uh, don't exist to the same degree in China, and they've really done a good job of providing this whole ecosystem mm-hmm. of solutions. Yep. Um, China also has a great example in healthcare of a large traditional enterprise spinning out a very successful platform in healthcare, which is Ping On, the insurance company, spinning out Good Doctor. Um, Ping On has gone on. Good Doctor is basically a marketplace, a services marketplace for um, in person visits. Remote telemedicine visits, and now they centralize your EMR. They centralize that electronic medical record, and now they're opening that up to third-party app developers who can create software for the consumer, for the physician. Um, they're providing, you know, all the they can help clean up a lot of the data in 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 the database that you're using. It's such a great um, example about how platforms can provide. So much value in healthcare. Um, it's a really good North Star that a lot of the companies in the U.S. can, and I think some of them are looking at. 
Ping On has gone on to actually replicate this model in financial services, and they've spun out another very strong fintech platform, um, which we spoke about a few episodes ago. So let's go to Apple. Um, <clears throat> Apple merged. They'd spoken about this. So their target is by oh, 2021 to have iOS and macOS basically be ubiquitous in the sense that if I'm an app developer and I make an app for the iPad, that app will magically work for the laptop, for the, for the Mac OS. Right. So they've created this tool that at the moment is what it's supposed Catalyst. to do. Catalyst is that if I have an I- iPad app, I can basically use Catalyst and like, you know, go through a checklist to convert it to the Mac. And then all of a sudden it's available uh, on Mac OS laptops, desktop computers mm-hmm. as well. But there's some challenges with that, right? Yeah. And basically this article is saying that developers are saying it's not really working right. Yada, yada, yada. I think that's fine. Right. I mean, if, if the goal is 2021, you got a lot of time to figure that out. We got over a year here where if, you know, they're going to do this in cycles. This is V1. I get it. it. Makes sense. The big problem I see with this is the last little three words here. Users paying twice. I think this is really interesting. So it makes a lot of sense for Apple to do this on the supply side, on the producer side, where now if I'm a developer, I'm now able to just bring more inventory of apps to the desktop, to the laptop. And so, you know, if you look at the app store, it was predicated on the smartphone and then on the iPad. And that was clearly the main driver that that network effect, that differentiator to make that platform model um, extremely dominant and and basically why Apple's almost a trillion dollar company today, right? Um, Their market share with the Mac OS is much, 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 much lower compared to Windows. And so this has always been an area where, you know, if I'm Apple and say, oh, well, what if I could bring the scale of my app ecosystem on smartphones to my computers right. um, because there are a lot of apps that just don't exist for the Mac because there's just a smaller demand base on Mac computers versus on Windows. And so this could be a great way where they leverage the scale that they have on the smartphone iOS app ecosystem and can bring that supply side scale to the Mac OS. Strategically, it makes a lot of sense. This thing, though, I'm not really sure about. I don't think Apple has really kind of figured this out where you say, oh, okay, well, if the app is being magically ported to my desktop, should I have to pay twice for that? Well, I think the reason, part of the reason that exists now is it's the magical part isn't quite there yet. So there's some effort involved typically in making this actually work well. If I'm an app developer, the challenges they mentioned. So the checklist kind of feature is supposed to be like, all right, it goes over, but there's a lot of things that are different from a touchscreen to a you know mouse and keyboard kind of form factor. So if you're actually going to do something well, there's a little more investment that goes in it today. I imagine if that eventually gets smoothed out uh, and it really becomes magical, you know, and it's easy to port over, that double pay model goes away. Uh, but I think for them to get some initial supply and at least incentivize them, all right, you guys, you can get more money if you do this rather than, you know, it's just more convenient for your users. It makes sense. And I think it will motivate more developers to do it in the short term. I think long-term that double pay model is probably or almost definitely going to go away. Yeah, I think this is a good example where, you know, how could the platform help put some standards um, around pricing? So, you know, um, 
when the iPhone first came out, I think the cheapest app was like a buck ninety nine. It wasn't ninety nine cents, right? Or was it ninety nine cents? I think it was more. I think it was at least a buck ninety nine. They put it a floor, platform enforced floor. So I think what would be interesting is if instead of leaving it up to the developer, where now kind of the developer could be made out to be the bad guy, where yeah, I'm deciding to charge you twice, even though right. there's a lot of negative feedback that this article mentioned yes. of developers saying. I already bought your app. Why are you trying to make me pay for it again? So I would say like if, if, you know, if Apple just says, Hey, you know, there's a 30% uh, premium or additional fee, for example, um, if you are using the app or if you want to unlock this app that you already bought on the phone and now you want it to work on the desktop or something like that, right? It's still a discount. Um, compared to what it used to be, but there's still a little bit more incentive for the developer. This, to me, from a pricing standpoint, is a place where the platform should help to step in until the market normalizes and you right. have a little and bit more. Supply. Yeah, you have more supply. Um, you just have more kind of, uh, <coughs> you know, the users just have a, a strong, you know, a given expectation about how this should work. Right. It's kind of the the no man's land right now. And you don't want developers to, um, suffer. This is supposed to promote developers to adopt this and bring more supply. So if you can help standardize some of the uneasiness around pricing, always a touchy subject with consumers, um, that takes a lot of the onus off of the developer. So um, that's one thing I think if I was Apple, I would move much more quickly on this paying part of the equation and I, the development stuff will eventually um, work out the kinks. So lastly here, we've, t- we've spoken a lot about real estate marketplaces, um, Zillow and Redfin, both in Platt, the ETF. And uh, I really like this month's proposal, uh, fellow or who knows, lady on Twitter. And um, he's talking about an interview, or the modest proposal is talking about an interview with Rich Barton, who is the CEO of Zillow. And um, basically what he says is Zillow didn't have a choice. Open Door's offering. Open Door, we've, we've spoken about before. Basically, they buy homes. They say, hey, I'm going to give you an offer for $750,000 for your house. They use big data to price it. Price it and then say, okay, I'm going to buy it. If I can buy this thing for $750,000, if I put $25,000 and work on this house, then I should be able to flip it for $850,000. And so they've got these algorithms and these models that are now proactively out of the blue giving offers to people to buy their house. Kind of an interesting model. Um, basically, Open Door is, is valued now more than what Redfin is. I think it's around $4 billion valuation, maybe five. It's close to what Zillow is valued at. I think Zillow is around six ish billion. So this is a linear business, though. This is not a platform business. So it's very capital intensive. You're buying stuff and then flipping it. But the whole model is that they can use data and algorithms to find um, opportune uh, buying opportunities and then flip them for for a good price, right? Um, So the CEO says, we saw this coming, this instant buying, this phenomenon. It was an existential threat because if it works and we don't do it, we get displaced as the marketplace theoretically. And um, so... You know, he says here, uh, you know, he's Barton is also on the board of Netflix. 
And so he's kind of hearkening it back to um, Netflix kind of upending the entertainment industry, which is more correct than the marketplace example, right? So this is kind of a linear business coming in and laying waste to how home buying has been done uh, forever, basically. Barton is also the co-founder. He co-founded it about 14 years ago. And um, basically, Zillow has decided decided to roll this out organically and they're losing money trying to figure this out. So they um, lost $72 million in the second quarter of <coughs> 2019. And um, what Barton's saying is we didn't have a choice and this is an existential threat. We had to do this. We had to figure this out. Now, what's interesting is that Barton founded this company. He'd been running it for over a decade. He didn't see this. Yeah. Open Door got pretty big before Zillow got around to doing this themselves. Redfin has partnered with Open Door. There's probably going to be a merger we predicted there. Actually, probably Open Door consuming the platform, interestingly enough. Um, and I think that's one of the, the interesting models in these really large ticket product marketplaces. Highly infrequent purchasing, right? So I buy a car, I buy a house. How often do you do that, right? So there's really very little, if any, stickiness on the consumer side to keep coming back right. and back again. It's really all on the supply side. Big one-off purchases. Big one-off purchases. That's why the Zillow work with the brokers and the real estate agents. The cars.com work with the dealers. Yep. So you have just such a stronger affinity towards the supply and the producers where you do have a lot of repeat business. And on the consumer side, it's much more transient and you have very high CAC to get these customers. And so you actually see these car marketplaces and these real estate marketplaces just having difficulty to have the same winner-take-all dynamic that you see with some of the more, I would say, like 2.0 type of marketplaces where the consumers have a lot of repeat usage and you have a lot of stickiness on both sides of the ecosystem. When you have less stickiness on one side or, or the other of the ecosystem, then you naturally kind of see just less consolidation of the network effect on both the buying and supplying side. The network effect is quite as strong. So there's the ability for more people to compete. You can get sufficient enough supply that you can make an offer to a customer, then you can basically just compete on ad cost. Right. And that's the interesting thing in these models, these linear buying and reselling models, whether that's a Carvana on the car side, I'm pretty sure I'm referencing the right company here, Carvana, um, which will buy your used car, fix it up, and then resell it. And similarly, Open Door on the real estate side is the platform now should have a competitive advantage to do the linear activity of buying and reselling because it has the widest access to data and it has the broadest network of coverage. Um, hence the Open Door Redfin partnership. So um, really interesting space here. We'll see, can the, can the dominant platform in real estate organically compete against the Open Door upstart um, or not? We'll see how this kind of goes. If this just, if this tips the scales. Go, going back to the, the downturn thing too, I think you have a company that has a business model that works fantastic as long as the market's going up, you can take a house and you can price it, you know, based on mm. 
uh, you know, current price levels and say, I can flip it. But if you have a bunch of these that are sitting on your balance sheet and all of a sudden housing prices collapse, what happens? Um, you know, not saying that's about to happen, but there, there is some skepticism about open doors model <laughs> great point. in a downturn, uh, because unlike a lot of these fintech companies, they do have, uh, huge assets that can, you know, have a lot of downside to them basically in a downturn, uh, even to a greater degree than loans do. And a lot of these fintech companies also don't hold those on their balance sheet. Yeah. They're just marketplaces. Yeah. Great point. Founded in 2014. This is kind of weird. Um, Keith is a VC. He's listed as a founder. Guarantee he wasn't an operating founder of this, unless I'm completely missing something here. Pretty sure he's been with Kosla Ventures for a long time. But yeah, interesting. VCs being counting themselves as founders. That's a new, yeah, he, he co founded Open Door. I don't know. It's, it's on his Wikipedia. So it must be true. But he joined Kosla in 2013. How did he how did he co-found Open Door in 2014? I don't know about that one. I don't know. It sounds maybe like a founding investor. No offense to Keith. I like what Keith, but I don't know. I just would consider a founder an operator. Someone working on the business full time. Yeah, I just oh. yeah, it's interesting. They've done well for themselves. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. All right, Keith finally. I guess maybe he like maybe he incepted this Coastal Ventures. He finally launches his real estate startup. This, I guess, this was his idea. He assembled the team. Yeah, interesting. He said Peter Thiel gave him the idea. The level of integration you don't usually see in VC where not only we're going to fund it, but we're going to build the team to fund it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's actually very interesting. Um, Peter Thiel, my friend Peter Thiel suggested I come up with an idea to innovate in residential real estate. It's the largest part of the economy unaffected by the internet. And that was definitely true then. And even with things like Trulia and Zillow, it's fundamentally true today. But the process of selling a home hasn't been transformed by technology. Interesting. Okay, I guess he's the founder and kind of concept originator of uh, of Open Door, disrupting the real estate industry. So good job, Keith. Very interesting model. Well, that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you tomorrow.